Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm, uh, I'm excited because I'm here with the mischievous Jeffrey Mishlov. And so I'll tell you a bit about him. New Thinking Aloud host Jeffrey Mishlov, PhD, is the author of The Roots of Consciousness, Side Development Systems, and the PK Man. Between 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series, which we all saw with great pleasure and interest. He has a doctoral diploma in parapsychology. I think it might be the only one that was ever awarded or accredited, and um, he's past vice president of the Association for Humanistic Psychology, and more, more like that, the Intuition Network he was the past president of, and he now has a series on YouTube called New Thinking Aloud, and I was very uh, fortunate to be interviewed by Jeffrey last week. And I have to say that it's just about the only interview of me that I ever watched, and I derived great pleasure from it. So welcome, Jeffrey. If there are some other things you'd like to say about your life and career, please do. Uh, oh, no, that was an excellent introduction. Thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Pleasure to be with you here in, in your home. Excellent. Doing this interview. I imagine most of your interviews are on the phone or Zoom or something, so this is a little different. Yes, and it's a great pleasure because the, the sound is so much better and what's important is that we actually see each other, Mm -hmm. and even perhaps into each other. Mm -hmm. So my first question I'd like to ask you, uh, what is the difference between parapsychology and psychology, uh, UFO research, all of these strange arms of understanding of the human? That's a big question. The... um Let's start with psychology, because psychology means the study of the psyche, and psyche is the Greek word for soul. So you would think that what we call parapsychology, my field, the study of extrasensory perception, psychokinesis, and the possibility of life after death, reincarnation, uh, 
you think that properly belongs as, as a division of psychology. But what's happened in the last hundred years or so is that the field of psychology, originally founded by William James, who in the United States, who was deeply interested in parapsychological issues, but the field of psychology got hijacked by people who have no interest in studying the soul, or at least didn't until maybe uh, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, they called themselves behavioral scientists or cognitive scientists. But the, the, if you talk to them about the soul, they would run away as fast as they can in the opposite direction because they want to have nothing to do with anything that might be so pseudo-scientific to them as, as the concept of the human soul. I have to say that uh, you interviewed me for KPFA 40 years ago, <laughs> and it's quite yeah. extraordinary that mm -hmm. here are our souls together 40 years later. Yeah. And I have to say to you that we met a week ago, and the night before we met, I had some very amazing dreams. Oh. And I think I shared with you the next day what my dream was, mm -hmm. and I didn't write it down. And then last night, I had a very interesting dream as well. Mm -hmm. And it was very precise. Uh, you know, I was involved with Timothy Leary, but I was never a hippie. Mm. I mean, I wasn't here in the late 60s. To me, being a hippie was about music, about beautiful fashions. It was more about beauty mm. than about politics mm -hmm. or even philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so last night I found myself in a very beautiful commune. Timothy Leary's wife before me, Rosemary, who... Uh, actually went through part of the 60s with him, mm. was the hostess. I got to know her. She took me around and showed me how people lived. It was really extraordinary. And it was this kind of dream where you wake up and you can go back to sleep and continue the dream. Mm. And I actually woke up And I thought about you, and I thought about the fact that the time before we met, I had amazing dreams as well. And I credited our meeting, and I went back to sleep, mm -hmm. and I continued to dream that dream. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was wondering if that fits with your research and things that you've discovered about soul connection, about parapsychology, etc. Well, I suppose the case is, I, in my experience, and of course this is very subjective, but uh, the deeper I explore parapsychology, the more peak experiences, mystical experiences, synchronicities, profound dreams, telepathic interactions seem to just uh, crop up spontaneously in, in my world, in my experience. So um, 
I can't say that anybody has ever reported just that kind of a dream before. That's new. But the idea that there would be some sort of uh, special uh, connection involving this deep parts of the psyche, that makes sense to me. So perhaps you can uh, give me your view on this. I, I have been thinking all my life about how one thing brings about another, mm-hmm. the mosaic and pattern of our lives. And frankly, I'm absolutely in awe of how the sequence of events in one's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you look at that in your own life? <laughs> That's a great question. And, and surely you have had an amazing life. I think uh, anybody who reads your book would get that right away, a really amazing life. In my case, I can say this. I I had a very normal upbringing in the American Midwest uh, from a middle-class family without uh, any anything unusual until after I uh, got out of high school and went to college. Then things started to happen for me. I made a decision at some point in my life, uh, that I was going to switch um, from, at the the time, I made that decision, I was my early 20s, I was a graduate student in criminology, the University of California, I was studying all of the uh, dark side of human nature, I was working in the psychiatric unit of San Quentin Prison doing uh, group therapy with murderers and rapists. And it was fascinating work, as you might imagine. And, but it's something inside of me was rebelling against it because I, I saw that, you know, th- there's a career. You could have a career doing this. Criminal justice system, they need uh, people. Uh, but I knew that for me, I had to shift, that this was already uh, too depressing, and that I had to focus on the positive side of human deviance, not the negative. I wanted to be able to study mystics and psychics and creative people and intuitive people. And I resolved I was going to find a way to do that, even though at the University of California, there appeared to be no possibility for that. If you wanted to study psychopathology or crime, no problem. But if you wanted to study uh, the world's great mystics and psychics where there were no programs available at all. And at that point, once I made my mind up that this is the path I was going to pursue, it seemed to me as if the universe was reaching out to help me that, that this is something the universe wanted me to do. And I began having dreams, as, such as the one you've reported. And the dreams were guiding me into a situation. So before too long, I, uh, the dreams led me to have my own radio program on KPFA, where I met you. Uh, that I was literally guided to do that through a dream. And so, um, you know, one thing followed after another, and uh, it hasn't always been easy. I've had major challenges, as I know you have, but underneath it all, I felt that as long as I resolved to be the best human being that I could be, 
the universe was going to reach out in subtle ways and synchronistic ways to, to provide assistance from time to time. I really, really understand that because what I feel is that in as much as we can, which is something I'd like to ask you about, we are the painters of our own lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, that our lives are canvases Mm -hmm. and that we have a certain amount of choice in the colors of the painting or the mosaic that will be our life. Mm -hmm. In effect, I really actually think that we are doing a favor to God by acknowledging that. So, how do you feel about that? Well, the idea of, I think what I hear you saying is that we don't have control over everything. We might be able to choose the colors in the painting, but uh, or the colors that we paint our house, but the basic structure of the house is already there. That's it. And we have to live with that. We're, we're dealt, uh, you could say, we're dealt a set of cards when, when we're born. And uh, we have to learn how to play our hand as best we can. And some people have a stronger hand than, than other people the, from the very start, from birth. I mean, genetically or in terms of inheritance or culture. Um, so, so it's a mix. It's a mix, but there's always some room for creativity. And in fact, one of um, a philosopher who is of great interest to me is Epictetus, who is a Stoic philosopher, and he was a slave. He was born a slave. He didn't have a lot of control over his life. In fact, he, he remained a slave throughout his life. But he said, even a slave has important choices that they can make. A slave is in control of their character, which may be the most important thing. That Yes, you can punish a slave. You In those days, they did, too. The owners could kill their slaves if they wished in ancient Rome. But no matter what the slave owner was to do, the slave himself, according to Epictetus, was still in charge of their own integrity as a human being, that nobody can take that away from you. They can, of course, they can do an awful lot of damage. Yes. (laughs) You can, and when they do that damage, they're the ones who are harmed by it. Beautifully said. You can always maintain your sense of integrity under any circumstance. So we have, we have at least that, a measure of control over our lives. Obviously, some have more than others. I learned a lot from what Timothy Leary said when he was taken to prison. Mm. And he said, you can't imprison love. You cannot imprison love. Mm-hmm. And I have reflected a lot on the fact that you can't imprison freedom. I'm very... Um, I love this movie, uh, La Vita Bella, you know, that Italian movie where 
uh, he's in the concentration camp with his child, and he, with his little child, five-year-old child, and he, he tells his child that it's a game. And so it's not so frightening mm. for the little kid. Yeah. Or Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. I'm very inspired by those things, yeah. by those, that kind of thinking. And in fact, your last, um, tell me how you call them again. In the, are you referring to the in-presence monologues? Yes, yes, uh-huh. thank you. Your, your last monologue was about chaos magic. Yes. I want to remind everybody you can go on YouTube and uh, Jeffrey does a 10-minute monologue every day, except when he has more to say, then he'll <laughs> say it. So this one is on chaos or chaos magic. And uh, I uh, really believe that our thoughts can change things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd like to hear about what you think about uh, what happens when many people think, uh, think something at the same time. Well, that's a question that parapsychologists are quite interested in. For example, we, we use the term psychokinesis, or mind over matter. So an interesting question is, is it better if many people try to concentrate on uh, some sort of an effect in the real world? Or is it better if just one very talented person does that? And I did a a lot of research with one very talented person named Ted Owens and and published a book about it Mm -hmm. called The PK Man. PK is the initial that parapsychologists use uh, for psychokinesis. But parapsychologists have also looked at whether there's a group mind. And can the group mind be more powerful than the individual mind? I'll give you an example of that. Uh, J.B. Rhine who was really the modern founder of the field of parapsychology at Duke University in the 1930s. He started in the 30s, and um, he I think he died in the 1980s. But in any case, uh, an example of looking for a group mind effect uh, that J.B. Ryan engaged in was at basketball games at Duke University, uh, when the basketball is a rim shot, so it sort of rolls around inside the net, and then it may either bounce out or go in. And he wanted to see if, if the various rim shots of the home team, more of them went in than the rim shots of the away team as as a way to look at p- possible psychokinesis. And, well, he got mixed results. I would say Overall, my impression is sometimes a single talented person is better than a whole group of people uh, trying to concentrate like that, at least in terms of experiments that parapsychologists Uh conduct. However, let me take it a step further because there's been another project. Uh, It's called the Global Consciousness Project. Uh, run by my friend Roger Nelson, and where he has 
we call them random event generators. They're quantum mechanical devices that are essentially monitoring the what you could call a quantum mechanical foam, the random activity at the quantum level that underlies everything in the physical universe. And he has these devices scattered all over the world. And what he looks for is global events where you're going to have maybe a billion people on the planet all focused at once on the same event, such as the funeral of Princess Diana or the opening ceremony of the Olympics where everybody's watching on TV or a major event in the news. And and what he has found when these events occur, it seems to affect the underlying structure of this quantum random foam because the uh, devices all around the world, he calls them eggs, (laughs) but they are uh, random event generators. And he finds they deviate from uh, chance expectation at the time that these events occur. So you could say, yes, the consciousness of many people on the planet, uh, when it's focused, when it's unified and coherent, does have an effect on the underlying reality. Mostly, though, we're not. We're not focused. We're not coherent. Well, for instance, at the time of the election, Mm. obviously more people were thinking Hillary Clinton because more people showed up for her. Yes. But yes, yet it took less people to place Donald Trump in power. And now you know there's mm-hmm. the Electoral College and all that, but mm. if you think of it about in a way of pure mind, what's maintaining, what puts him in power and what's maintaining him in power is a lot less people thinking about him than the opposite. How does that power structure stand? Oh, now you're asking a very complex question. And when I look at the Trump election, which I'll just tell you personally, so you know, I'm horrified (laughs) by by what happened. And I like to let people know that out front. I don't want to hide that I have a bias. However, it strikes me that uh, this very improbable event occurred. Now, there were friends of mine who predicted it that it would happen. Uh, One person predicted it for astrological reasons. Another person predicted it because of other recent elections like the uh, Brexit election and was an election in Israel and and a few other places where extreme right-wing candidates surged at the very last minute and and surprised uh, even the pollsters. So, So there's that factor. Right. There's the factor of uh, collusion or conspiracy with the Russian government and the Russian attack on uh, uh, people's minds through bombarding Facebook and other social networks with fake news about Hillary Clinton running a child pornography sex ring inside of a pizza parlor. Mm -hmm. And and that's still going on, even, even today. So on top of all of that, you had certain people with a right-wing 
disposition, they call themselves the alt-right, who were actually consciously practicing a, a form of magical ritual they call meme magic or related to chaos magic, which I did a blog about. Uh, it's also related to this iconic use of the uh, Pepe the Frog image and the relationship between Pepe the Frog and the ancient Egyptian god of chaos and darkness, Kek. And, and certain coincidences that occurred is as if the universe, ironically, was helping these people out in a certain way because they were all, the, the people I'm talking about were enthusiasts for a, an online computer game called World of Warcraft. And they found when they were typing messages to them each other, and the World of Warcraft game, and they'd use the abbreviation LOL, meaning, I think, what, lots of luck? And sort of like, good luck. And it came out as, uh, or laughing out loud. Uh, it's a common abbreviation used by people who interact on the internet. But the World of Warcraft game was malfunctioning at some level so that when they typed that in... It, and on their computer screen, it showed up as K-E-K instead of L-O-L. So they were saying, Keck, Keck, something's happening. And then they, look, what's who's Keck? Oh, Keck is the ancient Egyptian deity, very ancient, even before uh, the more uh, intermediate uh, dynasties. But one of the oldest gods of, of Egypt, uh, the frog god of chaos and darkness, also the god of light. Incidentally, Keck is both male and female, and one side is is the god who brings the dawn, and the other side is the god who brings the darkness. So, so it's a very um, powerful and very ancient and very uh, two-sided, a god with two faces. Uh, but they were invoking this deity and transferring in their minds the power of that ancient deity into their frog icon, the same because there you have the frog. And so there is some sense. There was a fellow named Michael Lachman who wrote a book called Dark Star Rising in which he, he claims that this, had, this was yet another factor that helped uh, Trump uh, win an election, or let me put it this way, helped Trump become inaugurated as the president even though he lost by almost three million votes. Well, I'd like to I'd like to understand how how these pieces come together again, this mosaic. Last night I was in my bathroom and there's a little shelf I haven't looked at in a long time. And I looked at that shelf and I saw a little form and I thought, Oh, I, I didn't know I had a tiny cat statue and then I picked up the little thing, and it was a frog. And one of its legs were broken. And I thought at the time, oh, it's funny, the lady who cleans the house now, she she breaks things, you know. And then I thought, well, that yeah. happens because you move things. But this morning, I watched your monologue, and I thought, you know, in my imagination, it could be that that was not an accident, that this little frog that I've had for uh, 20 years 
had a broken leg. Mm. Uh, and I'd like to understand that language. That's why I'm excited about talking <laughs> with you, because I, I think you've been studying that for a really, really long time. Well, we could look at it as if it's a dream, that uh-huh. it's all in, in a dream. And, of course, the frog breaking a leg is, has a lot of meanings. For example, in the theater, when you go, if you're an actor on stage and they want to wish you good luck, what do they say? Break a leg. So it may mean that uh, that, that uh, image that happened in, in the dream of your life mm-hmm. is a sign that the, the frog is about to uh, engage in another performance, <laughs> which, which I can tell you many of the uh, supporters of Donald Trump on the alt-right uh, are, are intending. Michael Lachman, the author of the book Dark Star Rising, who has also written like 20 books on magic and the occult, says if you want to uh, counteract what the outright people are doing with this frog deity, uh, you can imagine the deity kind of falling apart, falling into pieces, breaking mm. up. Now, I should say one other thing. It, it has occurred to me recently. Why would the American population be susceptible to the energy of an ancient Egyptian deity? Well, yes. Well, I don't. You did, wouldn't remember because you didn't grow up here, but. I remember when I was a child, a young child, and I'm roughly the age of Donald Trump, too. Uh, there was a very popular program on TV with a star named Andy Devine. You may re- know of Andy Devine. He was big television star back in the day. And he had a magical frog on his uh, program. And he always used to say to the frog, plunk your magic twanger, froggy. <laughs> That was that was the line from the show. I even found it. You can still see it on YouTube. And <laughs> plunk your magic twanger. So, so people of uh, my generation, and I'm under the impression that many people of my generation, older people, uh, voted for Trump, but um, to their downfall, probably. <laughs> but uh, many of them probably regret it now. But in any case, that aside, because as I say, I do have my biases. The the fact that we grew up with the idea of a magical frog, I think, would make that iconic image even more powerful in, in our culture. Meaning is another subject yes. that um, we both really love. Yes. And so I'm wondering, you had this fabulous program from 86 to 2002, where you interviewed some of the most uh, throw-forward minds around. And I'm wondering, is there a particular sense of meaning you picked up from most of these people? What, What meaning motivates people who are visionaries? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Your questions are very thoughtful. And I I would say this, that almost inevitably when I interview these people who were great uh, psychologists, philosophers, spiritual teachers, 
researchers, artists. Typically, by the time we get to the end of a good conversation, we come around to the idea that everything is connected. All is one. That, uh, there, you know, the idea that we're separate. Because that, when you look out through your eyes and you see the world and you say, you know, that I'm inside my skin and the world is outside my skin. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's all one. There is, the separation is an illusion. And, and that seems to be uh, the core of, of the meaning that I have derived from doing all this work. It's very simple. Beautiful. What about this 60s and 70s revolution, um, revolution? <laughs> <laughs> what about that, in your view, because you have studied our time a lot, uh, what would you like to say about that time and how it reverberates today? That's another wonderful question, and I feel very fortunate that I was born, as you were, in 1946. So I came of age in the 1960s. I was 14 in 1960, and 24, I turned 24 in 1970. And uh, so it was a very, very uh, potent decade you know, going from 14 to 24, you go through enormous change. That's that's the decade in which I became an adult, essentially. And, and those were my formative years. And I feel very fortunate that I went through those formative years in the 1960s and my early adulthood in the 1970s. And in a way, I'm kind of sorry for the people who were born after me that they missed out on all of that. Because for me, it was a time of enormous growth, enormous self-exploration. It, it was a time when, for example, I entered college in 1965 as a business major. I graduated from college in 1969 writing a senior honors thesis on the psychology of religious mysticism. <laughs> and, and, and I had helped form the Psychology Students Association. I was a psychology major by the time I uh, graduated. And uh, at, I can say this, at that time, Timothy Leary was one of my heroes. So... Uh, what we went through then was really life-changing, and it had to do with the psychedelic revolution. It had to do with the human potential movement that was very big in those years. It also had to do with the war in Vietnam and the realization that uh, we couldn't just accept everything that was handed down to us by our elders, in fact, there was a motto in those years, never trust anybody over 30. And, and there was a, a sense of, um, I would call it a sense of existential groundedness. So we knew it was up to us to create our own reality and not simply to buy into whatever other people were trying to hand to us. And and so I I think it was a very special generation. Now I know there are a lot of embarrassing things <laughs> that that happened, and there are things people a lot of people don't want to look back at the seventies because they're so embarrassed 
uh, by it. But I don't feel that way. By and large, I'm very proud of what we went through in, in the 60s and 70s. I think um, I will um, bring around, conclude this delicious time by asking you, so now, amazingly, we are the elders. Yeah. I wonder what you think our place is as, I'll, I'll say it, as those who didn't die, those who didn't go crazy, those who are still alive and healthy today, what can we bring in these years to society? What can we contribute? What is our responsibility as people in our 70s? Well, you and I share something in common. We're both communicators. You have th this podcast and you're sharing your soul with people, your wisdom, all your life lessons. And I, I endeavor to do much the same, and as well as all of the knowledge that I've gained from decades of studying parapsychology. Um, it's, I feel, you know, it's, it's a time for giving, and, and especially giving of oneself, because uh, that's the most valuable thing we have. Okay, well, thank you so much, Jeffrey Mishlov. I'm moved by the way you spoke. Well, th thank you, Joanna. It's been a pleasure to be with you.